Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. There are all these different tech ways that have kept up with the way we create our identity online. So you shouldn't assume just because you can video chat that you know who's behind the camera. And again, it doesn't mean anything if you're talking to someone on the camera unless you know about their digital footprint. Yes, you may know that they are the gender and the age and possibly a few other identifying features that they claim, but you don't know if they're married. You don't know what country they're living in. You don't know if they're a serial killer. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse. They are the go-to agency for any organisation with digital needs. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Susanna Birch. Susanna's story is quite amazing. She's a survivor of childhood family violence and of teenage catfishing. Many of you would be familiar with the term popularised by the documentary and subsequent MTV show Catfish. But to hear a real local story of someone who's experienced this is equal parts fascinating and harrowing. Susanna is now a certified birth doula and she works with pregnant women and grew her pregnancy information site Trimester Talk to 500,000 views per month. After 10 years in the digital marketing industry and completing a Master's of Marketing in 2019, Susanna now offers affordable bite-sized digital training through the Eat Digital Group or one-on-one consultations via Ask Susanna. Susanna is truly an amazing person and role model and I'm really glad that I managed to connect with her via Twitter. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Susanna as much as I did. So I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Susanna Birch. Welcome to the podcast via Zoom, Susanna. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm looking forward to an interesting chat. We've had this booked in for a little while and we kept jumping around with dates, but I'm really happy we finally locked something in because there's so much to talk about with you. Um, I don't want to get in the way of some amazing storytelling that you do about your background, your history and some of your struggles. Um, I'd love for you to just sort of take us on a bit of a journey um, as to sort of early childhood to sort of today. Not, no big asks, not, not, not such a huge demand, but um, would love to hear a bit about your kind of journey in your own words. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Well, my journey hasn't been a simple one. It's involved um, quite a few different people along the way, but I got to where I am today starting from something that happened when I was two and a half years old. So at that point in time, I had parents who'd been married several years. I was a two and a half year old toddler and life was, you know, seemed really great. I was living at home with my parents and then my mother started exhibiting strange behavior. And at that point, it was the late 80s. And people didn't really have a lot of idea about mental health and what it meant when there were issues and so on. So my father just thought that maybe she needed to get out more, she needed more of a social life. When she started reading more of the Bible, when she started saying strange things, maybe he just needed to have a chat with her and put her on the right track. But unfortunately, it wasn't that simple. So when I was two and a half, one morning, my mother... Um, woke up early, sent my dad off to work. It was an Australia Day weekend and um, she boiled a knife and then she cut my throat. So 
it wasn't what anyone expected. It wasn't what my father expected. And he came home from work to find police cars everywhere. And that kind of started a saga in our lives. Now, one thing I was very grateful about at that point, which I didn't realise till years later, was the fact that the police kept it very quiet in the media so we had privacy, which was great because, as you've probably seen from some other big cases where um, children get hurt, it can, it can get very high pressure for all the people involved. And fortunately, there was very little in the media and we had that privacy. I went on to have surgery, multiple surgeries, in fact, and I had a tracheostomy tube in my throat for 11 years, which is, as you can hear, my voice is a bit breathy, and that's why, because I still have a paralysed vocal cord. And um, I went on to live with my mother and be homeschooled by her till I was around um, 13 years old. And, um, yeah, that that's how my story kind of started till my teenage years. <laughs> Uh, that's that's incredible. I mean, we covered some really heavy content there. Um, I want to come back and ask you a bit more about it later, but I'm curious what happened at 13 and I think you go to live with your father at that point? Well, that was the point at which my mother actually took me out of the state and went to stay with her relatives over on the other side of Australia and she experienced another psychotic episode and that point when she actually did that was when I realized okay something strange is going on as I was getting older I realized that this wasn't normal behavior for a parent and when my father actually found us in the end and came to get us and take us home I actually said to my dad I think you need to get a divorce and um, I think it was three or four months later that my parents actually made the decision to split and I went from being homeschooled into a traditional school, which was a bit of a culture shock. And I then continued talking to my mother, but I lived with my father. And in 2008, I cut off contact with her and stopped talking to her completely. And so how hard was doing that? It wasn't an easy step, Um there are multiple times where I thought about it, but you know how it is when you say, I'm going to do something, sometimes you go back and forth and you're not quite sure. It's a huge step when you've got someone in your life and you stop talking to them. So I had tried before, but 2008 was the one that really stuck. I just kind of got really tired of the way that she treated people around her. I think she has some undiagnosed issues. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia originally, then re-diagnosed with bipolar. But I believe there are other things going on as well and she could be quite toxic. So often she'd talk to me for a short period of time and then she'd experience a psychotic break and any secrets I told her, any information she would then use against me. So I didn't want that kind of person around my children when I had them. So I felt it was best to cut her off at that point. So that's that's a whole lot to take on board at a young age, having such a complex relationship with your mum and, you know, you experience some pretty horrific violence. How do you and when do you start talking about that with people and sort of when does it sort of catch on and become public and in the media? 
as I said earlier, I was very lucky that we didn't have publicity around it originally and we had that time to heal and figure things out. But when I was, I think I was 26 at the time, and I met a journalist who came to a writing group because I, I love people and I had started a local writing group and she attended and I started helping with her with some of her marketing because I love amplifying important messages and he was a journalist who specialised in trauma and abuse and I told her my story just when we were chatting and she went, whoa, okay, where did that come from? And at that point she said, we need to do a story about this and put it out there and help other people. So when she said that, I was like, mm, no, probably not, no, I don't think so. And he kept talking to me about it and she didn't pressure me, but he then took me through the process of actually telling my story in about six months down the track. I went, okay, we can do this. And then we worked on it for a year and then it went to the media. Now, that was the point at which it all went a little crazy and that was full on. I would recommend if you're going to tell your story to the media, be prepared and have a good support network because um, my story went viral in 10 different Just languages. hold on one sec. So I'll come right back. I'm just gonna let my, sorry, we're back on. I just had to let my wife out. Um, so you get all this media attention. You, you work on the story and you work on how you're going to put it out to the media. How important is sort of working with a trusted journalist and really shaping a story before it sort of, you know, just gets out? I was very lucky to accidentally find a journalist who actually specialised in abuse and trauma stories. So she'd worked with um, a lot of cases of uh, abuse in schools. and She had honed her craft, I guess, to the point where she's really good at working with survivors and doesn't pressure them and knows how to take the time to tell a story in depth as opposed to going, oh, look, we're a headline today. So I think it's so important to do that because I have worked with other journalists since and some of them, they're all about the headline and they don't get the story right, they don't get the message right, which is the most important part if you're sharing your story. You need it to have a purpose and if the message isn't there, you're not fulfilling its purpose. It's so so well said and I found in my own experience as of recent times working with a, a journalist that you can write to like five to ten of them and you get nothing or just really like they don't get the story you get one who really gets it and you develop a relationship very quickly and you kind of there's a real interesting trust dynamic there isn't there because you really once you give them your story you're really trusting them to put it in a positive light or just you know give it give it the truth it deserves absolutely so in my case I was very fortunate with that and everything that happened after wasn't because of her she was amazing but I will say that after the story went to air it was very full on because I had my story go across multiple networks multiple countries and I was receiving emails from all over the place from people who were offloading their stories onto me and it's not easy when you're a survivor when people are treating you like a psychologist and you really need to have preparation for that and um, be aware that it's a really big deal and it's okay to take time and get support to get through it. It's very well said. Let's talk a little bit about intergenerational violence and breaking the cycle. Like what, what does it do to a relationship like this between a mother and daughter to have gone through what you went through and 
what lessons can we sort of take away that can maybe help to break the cycle for future um, incidents or current incidents? I do think that one of the things that I've taken away from it is the fact that many people don't acknowledge that there can be issues between a mother and daughter. So I run a few groups on Facebook and I talk a lot in the area of mother and daughter relationships. And so often women who've been emotionally or physically abused by their mother are basically shut down because we're taught that no matter what happens in your life, you're meant to love your mother. And the problem is not every mother is meant to be a mother and can fully fulfill that role in so many different um, paradigms. So I think it's important for people to be aware that if you don't have a good relationship with your mother, that's okay and you shouldn't shame other people if they have issues with it either. But in terms of intergenerational trauma, a mother is, is a hugely important part of your life. And I know for me growing up, there were so many facets of my life where I went, I wish I had a mother around to help with this. Even simple things like learning how to put on makeup or, or talk about boys, things like that. You miss a part of your life when you don't have a mother around for that. And that, of course, means that when I'm teaching my children about those things, I don't necessarily have those skills passed down to me. And I think that's part of intergenerational trauma. Yes, there is the deep emotional issues and the mental health issues, but there's also the things that you don't deeply think about which come down to just living your day-to-day life and how you can function as an adult. I think one of the really interesting things that I read about you and your story was that you were really worried at one point that what if I end up like my mother because there's such a high incidence of, um, you know, trauma passing from one generation from, from victim to perpetrator. Um, how did you deal with that and what was that like for you? Honestly, I went through the whole, oh, I'm fine now. Every few years I'd be like, oh, I've, I've dealt with all the issues. But no one explains that when you've had that kind of trauma, when you have your own children, it brings up all these new issues, experiences and feelings. So for me, I had what is called postpartum OCD, which is where you have intrusive thoughts. So for me, because there's a part of me that always went, what if I'm going to be like her? I had some very scary thoughts about what if I hurt my children and what if I do something similar. And I didn't realize at that time, but with OCD, you actually think about things that you're less likely to do because you go out of your way to avoid doing them. But when you're having those thoughts, it feels as if those thoughts mean you're going to act on them. So it was not easy going through motherhood, especially around the same age as I was for my daughter and looking at those issues and experiencing those thoughts. And people don't talk about that enough. People don't talk about it enough. I totally agree with that. Um, what was it? What was your own awareness like that you were going through um, postpartum OCD and depression? I mean, did, did it take an intervention of, of your partner or friends or did you know you have some awareness yourself of what those symptoms might be like? I'm very fortunate with what's happened to me that – I go to a doctor and I go, I've got mental health issues and they basically go, well, okay, anything you need, you need pills, you need a referral, you need to go to hospital, anything will send you and give you what you need, which is great. But for me, honestly, Google was my friend because when you go to a doctor, you feel like someone's going to take your children away if you say, I'm having thoughts about what could happen if I hurt them. 
which is why women don't talk about it because they're so scared of those thoughts. But for me, Googling it and finding out that having those thoughts was actually a normal reaction to trauma and a normal reaction to being so scared about raising your children well, that was fantastic. And finding other support groups where you could connect with people like that. Which again is why it's so important to talk about because if other people know you've had those experiences, they'll be less scared when they have them and they'll be able to get help. So well said. And I think one thing that you've been really good at is creating um, communities of caring people who do share problems. What's that been like? Well, as I said earlier, I love people and I love bringing people together on like-minded topics, whether it's negative or positive topics. Sometimes even the negative ones can bloom into something very, very positive and supportive and helpful. So I've run groups around um, supporting women who don't have mothers. I have a big Instagram and Twitter following and I try and engage and be very honest and open about my mental health on those platforms. And I've met some amazing people through that. I've recently started using Clubhouse as well. And I've also run pregnancy groups and um, things like that. But you meet some amazing people and you realize that anything that goes on inside your head that feels like it's out of the ordinary actually isn't. So many people are experiencing the exact same thing as you. It's really well said. And I think some fundamentally very important points there about, particularly around sharing your experience, I think is so important. And I guess another reason why I'm grateful that you're here today. I'm curious to know a little bit about your career journey and the the shift into um, digital marketing from journalism. Well, that's a good question. Um, Honestly, it all happened by accident. I'm very much a, oh, that's a nice, bright, shiny object. Let's go try that out. So I get distracted easily, but usually they're really fun distractions that turn into amazing things. So for me, I originally studied journalism not long out of high school because I always wanted to be a writer. I've been writing since I was very young, eight or nine. I used to write poetry and short stories. So I studied journalism thinking that would be a good writing choice as a career. When I graduated, I realized that actually there's not much going on in journalism with so many people moving into other fields because obviously it's very complex with the internet coming out and there are lots of people being laid off in the industry and I went well journalism probably isn't a great career choice at this point. So I had my first daughter around the time that I was finishing my journalism degree and when I had her I realized that I wanted to try something different because I'd only been working as a cashier up to that point and I tried making a website. It was absolutely terrible. It was about pregnancy. I had no idea what (laughs) I was doing. (laughs) And I started reading online about how to get traffic and then I ended up on another site and then I made another website. And I, I kind of spent the first two years learning and that's how I really got into digital. Now, in 2011, I had something else happen accidentally that gave me another push and that was during the 2011 Queensland floods. So during those floods which really impacted many, many lives in Queensland and across Brisbane and particularly in Grantham, which isn't very far from me, um, I had a friend who had a daughter who he couldn't contact during the afternoon of those floods and I went, I'm going to start a Facebook page to try and connect with 
people and hopefully someone will know where she is. And I started the page and, you know, it had 500 likes in half an hour. Within 48 hours, it had 42,000 followers. Wow. So you hit the button on the head where there was a gap. Absolutely. So I'd never done anything with that much reach before and it was it was very full on and I ended up with I think it was five or six different people helping me around the clock. We had an average of a new post to the page every minute from people looking for help and support. And that continued for two to three months afterwards and it really taught me a lot about talking to the public, getting important messages out, supporting people, connecting people, and it was a great learning experience. So Putting together what I learned from that in the social media realm and what I learned about websites up to that point, I ended up starting a pregnancy website called Trimester Talk and I grew it to 500,000 views a month by 2017 and I had a big Facebook page, a Twitter following for it. It was quite big and I actually used that to get into working in agency work, in startups, ended up going and doing a master's in marketing because of it. So, yeah, it isn't the traditional journey, but it is really cool that the internet allows you to get out there and try things and yeah. see what works and connect and I, with people. I really like how your career kind of zigzags as well. Like people often try and tell like a straight narrative, linear story, but um, I think that the, the road less travelled is far more interesting much of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I really do want to talk to you about the catfish experience that you had. Um, I think you had the experience way before there was a TV show called Catfish, uh, which kind of popularised the concept or the, or the um, I guess you could say, type, typology of it. Um, what was the experience? Can you tell us a bit about that, that story and sort of how it impacted you? So back in 2002, for everyone who remembers back that far, there was MSN back in the day and there were chat rooms and there was Yahoo, all those little goodies on the internet. And I thought I knew everything as any teenager does. So I had had the internet since I was nine years old and when I was 15, I knew how it all worked and I went into a teen chat room because that's what you do every afternoon after school when you're 15. So I started chatting to some people there and I started chatting to a guy and he said he was actually from the same state as me, living only eight hours away, which on the internet is really rare because most of the time you meet people from around the world. So we began chatting and we got on really well and it was a complex kind of relationship at first but we ended up dating online for three years and it had a lot of ups and downs he was quite manipulative and he had a lot of toxic behavior which I didn't recognize at that point because we also could have like one weekend we had an 18 hour conversation on the oh my phone Lord. 18 hours yeah so I think I slept for like three hours that weekend and we just kept talking on the phone for hours so it felt like we had a good connection, but in fact, he was very much manipulating me. And I was 15, he was 17, and I thought things would go somewhere. And he ended up proposing when I was 18. And two weeks later, he took it back. He's like, no, no, I don't think this is going to work. And by that point, I went, it's been three years. You've always got the excuse that you can't use a camera because your parents are there or you can't come visit because you don't have enough money because you're starting uni. And it just 
skin that up anymore. I couldn't put up with it anymore. So I stopped talking to him as regularly. We broke up. But I did still continue talking to him for another nine years. So in total, it was 12 years. And up to that point, I had no idea what catfishing was. But when I was 27, I found out about the TV show and I went, oh, that's a thing. I didn't realize that was such a huge thing on the internet. So I actually used an online search to find his identity and it turned out he was actually 62 years old by that point. He wasn't two years my senior, he was 35 years my senior. And he had a wife, he had children, he had grandkids and yeah, it wasn't a fun ending to the story at all. Yeah, that's that's legitimately a crazy story. Like in the first uh, few years, how suspicious did you get because he wouldn't have the webcam on or you wouldn't arrange to meet up? Was that kind of in your mind all the time or it only just started to kind of click in a bit later? Honestly, when you're a teenager and someone uses their parents as an excuse, you commiserate with them. You go, yeah, my parents are a bit the same, you know, kind of thing. So it didn't seem as big a deal. I suspected he was lying to me about something, but I thought it was something he was embarrassed about. Maybe he didn't get good grades. Maybe he didn't get into uni. Maybe he was on the dole or living with his parents. I didn't think he was lying about his entire identity. And, I mean, it's just a, a really wild situation to have gone through. Um, I guess I'm wondering how do you kind of, feel when the is it like a bombshell feeling like once you, once it lands with you that that's what's happened this has been a catfish situation does it sort of kind of unravel your mind a little bit weirdly enough for me i experienced relief because for 12 years i'd been like why did he propose to me and then dump me why did he always keep me at arm's length when I found out there was really him, not me, it felt so good to know, hey, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't anything I did. It was nothing I could control. So it was a huge relief to have that burden off my mind. And you said you did an internet search to work out his identity. That's some serious sleuthing, like pretty impressive I, stuff. Sorry, I should correct that. I paid someone to do an internet search on him. Oh, so awesome. I, I had tried over the years, every detail he gave me, I was like, I'll Google him. He mentioned his father's business. I'll Google that. But I could just never find him and I hadn't realised till that point why. And how did, how did that person find him? So I actually used an online service called Social Catfish mm-hmm. and I paid them a fee and they said, all we need is a photo and an email address and we'll find him. And it took them 24 hours. That's incredible. Went, wow. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. The fact that that exists is amazing. That's really quite something. A little scary, but yes, yeah, amazing. <laughs> but, but then after the relationship ends, you decide to keep speaking to this guy. So that was before I found out he was a catfish. Okay. So after I did find out he was a catfish, I that was it. I actually went on a current affair and they did a sting on him. He ended up losing his job. He was a university lecturer. Um, so I, yes, I haven't talked to him since that happened. So that was six years ago, I believe. So you decided to tell the story and it actually, the media creates some kind of impact, like a, a positive impact in a way. Yes. So... One of the reasons I came forward was because I knew he talked to other women on that same teen chat room. 
And I was kind of hoping that I'd be able to contact them, but honestly, never, no one ever came forward, which was a bit of a letdown. And another thing with the media, when you share your story, you really hope it reaches the right people. And I had a lot of people contact me going, I've been catfished, thank you, but I didn't actually have anyone come forward who had known about him or talked to him back then, which I was a bit sad about. That's very understandable. Where are we at now in terms of how people actually take care of themselves online to prevent things like that? I guess you'd call it internet safety. What What is the sort of state of play and current practice that you see? And uh, do you think people are doing self-protection and sort of their awareness about this kind of behaviour better now than before? Honestly, a lot of people say to me, you know, it wouldn't happen these days. And I think that's a very complacent place to be because I know that there's a lot of tech now that can change things so you can easily be fake. So I know there was a Chinese influencer who was actually using digital software to change the age of her face and it actually failed during a live broadcast. And she was actually something like 30 years older than she appeared. And there are all these different tech ways that have kept up with the way we create our identity online so you shouldn't assume just because you can video chat that you know who's behind the camera and again it doesn't mean anything if you're talking to someone on the camera unless you know about their digital footprint yes you may know that they are the gender and the age and possibly a few other identifying features that they claim but you don't know if they're married you don't know what country they're living in you don't know if they're a serial killer or something else that's going on so just because we have the option to use tech these days doesn't mean people can't still use it to trick us because tech keeps up with what we do so as a result of your experiences, are you super wary? Like are you the, are you the one who's telling everyone, make sure you use an encrypted uh, messaging app, make sure that you're using a secure browser, make sure you put the dot over your webcam. Do you do that kind of stuff or? I'm less wary about that than you'd think. But at the same time, I always want to know that people have a real digital footprint. So these days, if you don't have, you know, a school newspaper that mentions you, if you haven't been, you know, listed on a website somewhere as an employee, it's kind of unusual because we all have a digital footprint, whether we intend to or not. And if someone doesn't have any digital footprint at all, it's usually a telltale sign that they're making something up. So look out for someone and their friend network, who they're connected to, where they've been, their appearances online. I think that's really the main thing you can do to make sure you know who you're talking to online. And uh, a tip that I would add is don't just accept everyone on any platform that requests your friendship or connection. I had a person reach out recently um, who didn't have a profile picture, already big cross, um, and turned out she only had three connections or like because I checked on her page. And so definitely a bot of some kind or a fake, but you've got to take that extra step and do your checking and look at the footprint as well, I guess. I, I guess that's another issue as well. If you're adding people on random platforms, you've got to be aware of what data about you they can actually track down. So I personally made the choice that I don't share photos of my children online right now. I'm waiting till they're old enough to be involved with that decision. And I think it's really important to be aware that people can steal your data and do things with that. Well said. So you've also, you're running a number of projects at the same time, but you've also got your autobiography that's being um, edited at the moment? 
Yes, so the editing process is the worst part. I will say that the writing part is far easier. Um, rewriting, not so much. So at this point, um, I'm trying to get all the edits done, which isn't fun. And it's actually been turned into a film script as well, which uh, came first place in a film award last year, which is really exciting. And we're looking at getting that produced as well. That's incredible. Hey, this has been an amazing conversation. I do want to leave the right links in the show notes as well. Could you tell people how they can uh, connect with you and learn more about your work online? Thanks, Mike. Absolutely. So I am on every social media platform because I love digital and I have FOMO, don't we, all these days. (laughs) So you can find me on nearly every platform under my name, Susanna Birch. S-U-S-A-N-N-A-H-B-I-R-C-H. And I'm pretty much everywhere. I'm an addict, I admit. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Thanks so much for chatting. Um, hold on the line for a sec and uh, we'll have a quick debrief. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 